God's will. That's God's design that we have a heart and a concern for one another. And that's expressed in one way. That's one way that it's expressed is through prayer. Wanting to pray for the one another that God has put in our lives and make others aware even of the specific needs that they're going through. So it's a wonderful thing. People also, though, request prayers for themselves. Usually a specific need. They have a surgery coming up or there's some kind of a trial going on in their life. So people also on those Wednesday nights, they'll request prayers for themselves. If something difficult that's going on in their life, something that they're facing that is a trial or a hardship that they're going through. And it's fascinating because both types of prayer requests are absolutely appropriate and needed. And they're a wonderful thing for a church family to be coming together corporately to be a prayerful church community, a prayerful church family or body, to be lifting up to the one who can do something about those needs, those prayer requests. You see, oftentimes we talk about the trials that we're going through in our lives with others. Oftentimes it's in the form of complaining. But we do talk to others in our lives about what's going on in our lives. And there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. In fact, that can be very good to make other people aware of what they're going through, not the complaining part. But to make them aware of what they're going through because if they're a brother and sister in Christ, they then might be in a position to pray for you. But sometimes we forget to ask them to pray for us. Sometimes we forget to bring those concerns and those trials and those difficulties to the Lord ourselves. And so here we are talking to all kinds of people about the difficulties that we're going through, and they can't do anything about it. Very often the trials that we're going through are things that nobody could do anything about other than the Almighty Creator. And so why is He the last one to bring those prayers to? Well, He shouldn't be. That was just a sidetrack there. That's not even part of the message this morning. But we think about where are we going to bring those concerns. And so it's great that we bring those concerns prayer requests about others to a larger audience so that they can be praying for and then prayer requests about what's going on in our own life to, again, a larger audience so that they can be praying for others. Now, although the vast majority of Paul's recorded prayers focus on his concerns for others, several of his prayers illustrate the appropriateness of soliciting prayers for yourself. So we've been going through or started a few weeks back, I think this is our fourth lesson in the series, on Paul's prayers. And we saw that there's roughly anywhere between 25 and 32, depending on how you count the prayer orders you add to the list as being a specific prayer. Sometimes he's paraphrasing a prayer that he's had in the past. Sometimes he's directly quoting the context of a prayer he's been praying for people, and so it's recorded in a letter. Sometimes he's just speaking about prayer or asking for prayer, and so depending on how you categorize what you're going to add to that list, Somewhere there in the ballpark of 30, though, prayers. Well, this is an example, though, we're going to see today about, again, the appropriateness of soliciting prayers for yourself. If you could take a minute and turn to Romans chapter 15, verse 30, that's what we're going to be picking up. Now, interestingly, this will be the third prayer that we'll have covered here just in this one chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 15. Seconds to get there, so it's very few pages. 
May it, be, may it be so. And so it's one of these things that there's another example right there of a prayer. Now, in some ways, it's a summary of a prayer. In other ways, verse 33 represents a direct prayer, I would say. So we'll dig into this a little bit more this morning as we look at this concept of soliciting prayers for yourself. Now, verse 30 is where we'll start. Now, I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. So this isn't specifically a prayer, but it's about prayer, and he's talking about soliciting or he's asking or requesting that they would pray pray together with him for himself. And then he's going to get into some specifics about the kinds of things that he wants them to be praying about as it relates to him individually or personally. But you can't help but see how he starts this with, I beg you, brethren, I beg you. And you think about the things that you are urgently requesting. You see the word beg communicates an urgent request for something. So you think about the things that you're urgently requesting from others, and what a fun word. I beg you, how could you say it any more clearly? It shows that you desperately are needing this or wanting this from the person that you're requesting it from. Now, what is he requesting so desperately? It's not like your kids coming to you and say, Dad, I need money. They're pretty desperate as they beg for money from you. It's just my kids? Okay, good job with your kids. Pray for mine. I'm happy as you go to some of these events, you know, even these sporting events that we're watching, the swimming meet yesterday. You can go bankrupt on that concession stand. I digress. Oh, begging, begging kids. That's where we were at. Okay. But this urgency, this sense of urgency, and you see that. You can see that word really communicates that well, but it's not just anything that he's begging for. We, of course, know that it's going to go on to say that he's begging for their prayers. Now, this word brethren, love this word too. It indicates that the request is being made not just to any random person. It's being made to somebody's siblings in the family of faith, your brothers and sisters in Christ. And you think about the closeness that is spoken of over and over and over again in the New Testament that believers ought to have in a familial way with their fellow believers, their siblings in Christ's family, their brothers and sisters in Christ. And you think about all of the things that could pull you in different directions where you're close to your job, you know, you're intimate with your other responsibilities or hobbies because you're investing a lot of time into them. Maybe you're intimate with your children because you have no other choice. They live under your roof. You've got to provide for them and undertake in their lives. Maybe you have that sense of closeness with your spouse. You should. If you're married, that's your first human responsibility, just a little reminder that everyone needs to have. But in terms of closeness, God wants us to be close to those who are in our faith family. 
He wants us to have his kind of love for them. He wants us to have his kind of concern for them. He wants us to see them the way he sees them, have his vision for them. And often we don't, not because we hate them necessarily, but because we're too busy for them very often. And so another food for thought. It's not about guilt or shame or obligation. It's about prayerfully considering how am I spending my time and is there ways that I can bring it to the throne of grace? I can come to the Lord and I can say, Lord, help me to prioritize this. Make, make this more real in my life or a more common part of my life that I can invest the substance of my existence into them, into people. Because if you think of the substance of life, the essence of life, you've been given a finite amount of it. And the substance of your life can be invested in many different ways. You think about how will you invest the the substance of your life. And you don't know how much you have. You have a certain amount of substance that has been allocated to your life that God himself knows, but you do not know. Today, your life, may, your soul may be required of you. This, is, this may be the last day we have. We, we may all be taken away to lift it up, raptured today to go to be with the Lord. But thinking about that unknown quantity, that substance of your life that has great value, it's the only thing you have in terms of, it's the only asset that has real value in your life. Consider that, and then consider, how am I going to invest that? Which things will I choose to spend that essence or that substance of my life on? And then if you think back to the last day, the last week, you take an inventory. If you were an accountant, I'm not. If you're good with numbers, I'm not. If you were detail-oriented, I'm not. But if you were, and you were going to go back and look at and take a little bit of an accounting of how you spent that substance of your life in the last day, the last week, the last month, the last year. Now, there's not a lot of value in doing that over and over and over again, but there's, there's value in being intentional about thinking, how am I using the substance of the only thing of value that God has entrusted me with, or the primary thing of value that God has entrusted me with? How am I using that? How am I spending that? And it's sobering. It really is. It's sobering because if you don't think about it, if you're not intentional about it, if you're not prayerful about it, if you're not saying, Lord, undertake so I don't waste my life, you're being honest with yourself. You're going to look back and you're going to say, I wasted time. Amen? Amen? That's absolutely true. And so the question becomes, how can I waste less time? How can I be more and more captivated by him? How can I have more and more of an awe of him so that I have my focus on him so that while my focus is on him, his spirit is leading and directing my life so that his spirit will never lead me in a way. His spirit will never undertake in my life to direct me to expend the substance of my life on worthless things. The spirit of God will cause you to redeem the time that you have. Not through any over analysis on your part or overthinking on your part but because you're enjoying him and as you're enjoying him and he's leading and directing your steps then by default the time that you spend the ways that you spend your time will be worthwhile it will have eternal value so don't take don't have your takeaway here being i need to 
be really methodical about accounting for my time. No, you, you need to enjoy your Savior more. You need to get your eyes on your Savior more. You need to let him lead and direct in your life more, and he will undertake to make sure that the time that you have, the substance of your life that is expended in each day, in each moment of each day, will be worthwhile and have eternal value. And I got all that from the word brethren here. Do you see each other that way? Do you have that love for each other that you could beg your brethren to pray for you because you have that closeness? We move on. Now I beg you brethren through the Lord Jesus Christ. Through refers to the source of their unity and familial closeness. For believers, that source is a common identity in Christ. That common identity creates an unbreakable positional bond. Do you see that? That if you have put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, there's only one way to be described or to be, I guess described is the best way of saying it, in Christ. Positionally in Christ. That's what gives us this familial connection is that you're in Christ and I'm in Christ. But there's only one way to be in Christ. It's to have put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ himself. To be a Christian is to be a Christ one. To be a Christ one is to realize that I was hopeless and helpless and hellbound apart from God undertaking through the work of his son to make a way for me, a sinner, to be reconciled with a righteous and holy God. So if you think of the predicament that man found himself in, he was born as a sinner. There was none righteous, no, not one, Romans 3.10 says. Romans 3.11 says, there was none that seeks after God. It's not only that we were unrighteous, had no righteousness of our own, but we weren't even interested in God, the Bible is saying. We were described as being without strength. We were described as being ungodly in Romans 5, 6. But when we were without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. So though we were unrighteous, though we weren't seeking after God, though we were ungodly, though we had no strength, nothing to offer God, though we were viewed as dead in trespasses and sins, though we were described as God's enemies in Romans 5, 10, God still looked at us in love. And see, the problem with being estranged from God or being described as being sinful is that the Bible says that the wage of sin was death, meaning that sin had separated us from God and God's holy righteous character. And so because we were identified with Adam's sinfulness, having been born into a race of sinners and then having chosen by our own volition to reject and rebel against God and sin ourselves, there had been this wall of separation of sin that had caused us to not be able to be in close proximity with God, to have a gulf fixed between us. And you think about if none was righteous, no, not one, if all of our works of righteousness were filthy rags, if there wasn't a just man upon the earth that had done good and sinned not, if we were not even seeking after God in any way, that was a hopeless situation because, again, the wages of being a sinner, all men have sinned, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, so everyone was in that same bind, but having fallen short of God's glory, we were separated from God facing an eternity where God is not. And of course, we know that the place that God is not is ultimately, in an eternal sense, the lake of fire or hell. 
The place that was not prepared for you and I, it was prepared for Satan and the fallen angels, the demons. But yet, the wage of being a sinner is that we, if we're identified with sinfulness, we can't be where God is. We can't be where, with him. We can't go to heaven one day. So God, in his love, he, he looked down at man in their need, and he said, I'm going to make a way for mankind to be able to be made right, to be justified, to be brought close to me. And you think about what was God's plan to do that? Anyone who's familiar with Christianity, though they maybe didn't understand the exclusivity of this, God's way of rescue was to send somebody else to die in the place of the guilty. The one he sent was his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. God himself became man so that he could die for you and I, to die in our place. You see, if the, the just debt that was owed for sin was death, and if we were all sinners, then we all owed a debt of death, death for sin. So God sent another to pay that debt. But what did that require? For us to have life, it required God's only son, Jesus Christ, to die to pay the debt of death for sin. So as Christ died in our place, he became sin for us even though he knew no sin so that we could become or be made right before God. We could, we could experience God's righteousness being credited to our account because of the substitution of Jesus Christ. So Christ died a death he didn't deserve for sins he hadn't committed because he loved you and I so much. So as he paid that debt that was owed, he cried out, it is finished. That's the last words that he cried as he hung on a cross saying, I love you this much. Now parents sometimes will say that, I love you this much. And my kids say to me, and I love you this much. <laughs> my wife taught them that when they were young. How much do we love our mama? How much do we love our daddy? Boop, boop, boop. But he died on a cross saying, I love you this much. And he didn't just die for some of your sins. He died for all of them, past, present, and future. So the issue isn't sin. The sin was laid on the Son of God. And as he died in our place in agony, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he did that because he loved you so much. Now I'll ask you, if he died for all of your sins, past, present, and future, which sins remain for you to have to pay for? Which failures and mistakes and flaws remain for you to have to solve and fix? Which part of his complete, finished work of redemption was inadequate, insufficient, and required you to somehow do the last little bit that Christ forgot to do on the cross. You see, religion says that though Christ died, they'll have crosses hanging at the fronts of churches, all, front of churches all across this country. Those members that go there will be wearing necklaces of crosses with Christ on them, having not accepted the fact that he paid for all of the debt that was owed. And in their own, having been taught religion, they, they have been taught that what Christ did was part of what needed to be done, but now the church or you must do what's left. This ritual must be accomplished. Something must be done in addition to what Christ did in order to save you. 
And you see, that's the natural inclination of man to think that I must do something to save myself. And the reality is you could never be saved unless you recognize that you were drowning and that you were hopeless unless somebody else came and rescued you through no, no participation of your own. And so, how does one get a hold of this salvation that Jesus Christ offers? Not by trying really hard. Not by trying to scrub up the outside and make himself acceptable to God. I haven't talked about this in a while. This here is a, is a glittery poop emoji. <laughs> Somebody gave it to me because I talked about this idea that so many people think that heaven is for good people and hell is for bad people. And their approach to being made right with God is to scrub up the outside to try to get away from the filth and make themselves acceptable to God. So on the outside, it's a glittery look. It's shiny, but it's still a turd on the inside. (laughs) And that's man's effort to please God through their own effort, through their own works. And that's why the Philippian jailer said to the Apostle Paul, Sir, what must I do to be saved. You see, he was, he was convinced by, he was touched by their testimony of singing praises and praying to God while they were in prison. He was impacted by that witness for Christ, but he was coming from a perspective of the world, and he said, what must I do to be saved? Thinking, just give me the five religious hoops that I need to jump through so that I can save myself. And they made it really simple for him. They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Not you might be saved. You will be saved. You could have absolute assurance of that salvation not because of anything you've done but because you recognize he's done it all. And if he's a faithful, sovereign, all-powerful and wonderful God then I can absolutely have confidence that I will go to be with him one day when I die because he gave me as a free gift everlasting life and my only part in it was to accept and receive, believe in that gift that was offered to me. For something to be a gift it must be freely given and freely received. Now, did the gift cost the gift giver something? Yeah, in this case, everything. He had to die on a cross in your place. But does a gift cost the gift recipient anything. It can't, or it can't be a gift. Grace can only be grace if it's God giving you something that you do not deserve. If God is going to give you salvation because you've done your part, then it's not a gift at all. It's a reward for services that are rendered. But the Bible says that it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but it's according to his mercy that he saved you. It says, by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not of yourself. It is a gift from God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Not of him that worketh not, but believes on him that justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. Not his works. See, Abraham was justified by faith apart from works, it says in Romans. We need to move on, but that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way you're going to be described as being in Christ is if you put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. The moment that you do that, the Bible says that you're born again, you're born into God's family, you are immediately sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise as a down payment on your future inheritance, as a son of God. He says, I will never let you go. 
Because it can't be everlasting life if you could lose it. You can't be sealed if it can be unsealed. The Bible talks about this is a present reality that you're given that can never be changed. You become God's child. How many times are you born into a family? Once. How many times are you born into God's family? Once. Can you change the fact that you're a child of an earthly family? No. Can you change the fact that you're a child of a heavenly family? And the answer is no. So you have absolute assurance of that. That's how you can be called a brethren. And what makes us brethren, though, is our common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We move on. The next phrase says, through the love of the Spirit, through the love of the Spirit. And this likely refers to the love manifested in believers by the Spirit. That's how I take this, as referring to love that is sourced in the Spirit. The idea here is a desire or motivation to pray for others represents the practical outworking of Christ's love being produced in you by his spirit. So the fruit of the spirit is love. That's the first one. So as the spirit produces God's kind of love in you, what kind of love was that? It was sacrificial and selfless love. As he produces that kind of love in you and you look at your brothers and sisters in Christ, what should that make you want to do for them? Pray for them. Because you'll want what's best for them. You'll want their spiritual, you'll be concerned about their spiritual well-being. Well, what's the best way to assist with their spiritual well-being? Pray for them. The second best way is to spend time with them. Come alongside of them. Fellowship with them. Edify the idea of building up one another in love. Minister to them. Show them God's love. So we see Romans 5, 5. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And that's what I think this is referring to. The love of God that lives inside of each of us or is present inside of each of us because God's Spirit itself, Himself, I should say, not itself, Himself as a person, is inside of us. So God's Spirit is been poured into our hearts by the indwelling of, is how you should take that, the Holy Spirit. As that is then practically outworked, practically flows out of you or it's an outworking in you and through you, then you, it's manifested by God's love for one another, which is demonstrated through a concern for others' spiritual well-being, which then leads you to want to pray for one another. Now let's get into the details a little bit hear about the specific. He says, I beg you, brethren, because of our common bond in Christ, because of the love of the, that is produced by God's Spirit inside of you, that, now here's my request, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. So pray for me. There's the title of our sermon this morning. And we look at this word, I beg you, that you would strive together, because those other two clauses are just describing the brethren, But then, I beg you that you would strive together with me in prayers to God for me. As you think about strive together, it literally means strain alongside one another for a common objective. To strain alongside one another for a common objective. That's what Christians are supposed to be doing. When when you hear the the phrase, striving together for the furtherance of the gospel. Same word. Striving together, though, we're talking about we're straining alongside one another. We're pressing toward a mark. 
not half-heartedly, but focused on the author and finisher of our faith, we're laboring as empowered by the Spirit of God to be found faithful as God's servants. That's why Paul describes himself as a doulos so often. A servant. Servant of who? Servant of God. As he says, my mentality is that I want to live for the one who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been given a task to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ. The whole of my identity is wrapped up in this mission to lift Christ high, to bring him glory, to shine the light on him so that the people around me could see my Savior, Jesus Christ, on full and prominent display. Not as something I fit in as a last item on the checklist of my life after I've given time and attention to every other care and concern of the world or of this temporary world around me or this temporary life, I should say. And then whatever's left, the scraps of my life I'll give to the Lord. That's not the idea at all. It's straining alongside of other believers with a common objective. And the common objective is, again, to lift him up. It, com- it communicates, this word communicates the partnership that should be present within the body. When you're striving together, when you're straining alongside of somebody, there's a very close camaraderie that comes from that. And prayer is one way believers can strive together to lift up Jesus Christ. Because he's saying, I want you to strain alongside of me with this common objective of lifting up Jesus Christ. But in the specific application, in the context, it's And the vehicle for doing that is going to be praying with me. The reality of intense spiritual opposition moved Paul to urgently request that his friends in Christ join him in the struggle by praying with and for him. That's the idea here. He recognizes what he's up against. We'll get to that in a second. And he says, I urgently request you as my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ to join me in praying for me. Now you see that specific there, in prayers to God for me. Strive together in prayers to God for me. Requesting the prayers of fellow believers is something Paul did regularly. Now, the prayers that Paul solicits focus on spiritual matters or things directly connected to the success of a particular ministry outreach. I want you to note that. So Paul's prayers, he's asking for prayers for himself, but he's soliciting prayers related to specific spiritual issues or matters or the success of a ministry outreach. And I'm going to show you a few examples here quickly because we're falling behind a little bit. But Ephesians 6, 18 through 19, here's another example of Paul soliciting the prayers of others for himself. But note that he's looking for prayers relating to his own spiritual well-being or the success of the mission. So it says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Now he throws, this is his prayer for himself, and for me. So connect the two, praying always for me. Now what's the prayer he's asking for as it relates to him personally here? That utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. What a prayer to ask somebody to pray for you. That utterance may be given. 
meaning opportunity may be given, that I may then take that opportunity through boldness of speech to do what? To proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we need to pray for. Boldness to proclaim the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done to a lost and dying world. Colossians 4, 2 through 4 is another example. Continue earnestly in prayer, he says, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving, a heart of gratitude. Meanwhile, he says, praying also for us. Now, what's the prayer request here? That God would open to us a door for the word. What does that sound like? Opportunity again. To do what? To speak the mystery of Christ. What is that referring to? The gospel the message of who Jesus is and what he's done. He says, that's why I'm in chains. And he says, the second prayer request is that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. I would put the focus on the right things. I would continue to make known Jesus Christ to those who I would have interactions with. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians 5.25. This is simple. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Now, it doesn't say what, but there's another example of him asking for prayer. Here's a, another one. 2 Thessalonians 3.1. Finally, brethren, pray for us. Now, what's this prayer request here again? You see this? There are no other times where he asks for prayer. So we, we will have covered them all here. And in each instance when he says, pray for me or pray for us, he specifically asks for a prayer relating to a spiritual matter or his own spiritual well-being or his own thinking as it relates to the mission, the ministry, the proclamation of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. But here we have it again. What's the prayer request? That the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. Awesome prayers. See, the the Christian's primary concern should be the success of the mission entrusted to him. The Christian's primary concern should be the success of the mission entrusted to him. Do you see that? Are are, are you mindful of that? How often do we need to be reminded of this, friends? Every day? Every half hour? What's the mission? Why am I here? It's so easy to forget. I'm here to lift up the name of Jesus Christ. That's not just who I am. I'm an ambassador of Christ. That's not just who I am. That's what I'm all about. Is that true of us? Sometimes. Is it true of us as often as it ought to be? No, because we start to see our identity as instead of seeing our identity as in Christ... We start to identify with other things. Instead of seeing our purpose as living to lift him up, we start to find our purpose in other things. Instead of finding our value in what he thinks of me, what he wants for me, and how he's provided for me, we seek out our value in other people and in other things. 
Instead of seeing my purpose as living to exalt him, I seek to find purpose in all of the wrong things. Now, is that natural? Yes. That's what you're That's what the natural man would do. That's what human nature would be. That's what the sin nature wants in your life. That's what Satan's trying to do all the time, to captivate you with something else other than Jesus Christ. So is it natural? Yes. But is there, is there victory available over the world, the flesh, and the devil? Yeah, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Why would we who have been freed from the power of sin remain in it or continue in it any longer? The spirit of life and godliness has given me freedom over the law of sin and death. There's freedom and victory available through your own strength? No. That's just a dumpster fire waiting to happen. There's freedom and victory available in your Savior and in the power of His Spirit transforming you from the inside out. The last thing I want to note about Paul's requesting prayers for himself is Paul's willingness to ask for spiritual help, and that's what he's doing here. He's asking for spiritual help by asking people to pray with him for himself. It demonstrates a humble attitude, though, doesn't it? See, somebody who is sufficient in himself would never do this. They would be having a posture that says, I've got this all figured out. Just look at me. They'd be strutting around like they do in many churches, including this one when we're not looking to the Lord. Christians strutting around with this attitude that effectively says, isn't Jesus lucky to have me? Forgetting the pit that you were dug from. That's why how often could you sing Amazing Grace and be reminded of something very critical? It saved a wretch like me. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells, is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 7. Nothing good dwells. Not just some things that are the last little bits of residue that I need to eradicate from this thing. Nothing. But the uplifting part of that is when I'm looking to the Lord and when I'm depending on Him, when I'm staying connected to Him, when I'm abiding in Him, when I'm walking by means of His Spirit, it says, there's nothing I cannot do. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Not because of me, but because of His strength working in and through me. We move on to verse 31. Now we get into the specific outcomes or issues that Paul wants them to pray for. So the first thing is, I want you to pray or join me, strain alongside of me in prayers to God for me, but these are the specifics. That I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, and then there's two more coming up in verse 32. So we'll start with these two. So there's four of them, but here's the first one, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe this is our, his first specific prayer request. See, Paul's concern was well-founded. Unbelieving Jews represented Paul's primary source of opposition. Now, if you're not sure about that, think about the letters. Think about the book of Acts. He would come to a new town. Where would he go first? 
the synagogue to the Jewish population, who would he present? Jesus Christ and him crucified, the exclusivity of the finished work of Jesus Christ. What was the typical response? Riot. The typical response was pushback, opposition, rejection. Did someone get saved? Sure. It's difficult for a religious man, though, to let go of his religion. You see, many people, regardless of what, who you're talking about, they're so tied up in the traditions of men that they forget that the whole point of the Bible was to show man that he needs to have a personal relationship with a loving, sovereign God of the universe. And so they forget about the relationship with God and they focus on the traditions of men. They focus on self-righteousness and how they can be better than others. How they can get little badges by jumping through different hoops in order to try to make themselves more righteous than the next person. But the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short. So if all of man's efforts at righteousness produced through human effort are viewed by God as filthy rags, then that's a real problem because that's what's captivating many men. Many men, many men, many a man or many men. And that was true here. To put your faith exclusively in the finished work of Jesus Christ was to acknowledge that all of this effort that you had made to be more righteous than the next person through your own strength was for nothing. And people don't want to let go of that. It has to count for something. No, it counts for nothing. It's offensive to God, in fact. So he went there first. Generally, what was the response? Opposition. He faced nearly constant resistance and persecution from unbelieving Jews. He faced some resistance and opposition from believing Jews as well. But unbelieving Jews were the primary source of the resistance against him. The Jews did try to kill him within about one week of his arriving in Jerusalem. So he's going to Jerusalem. He's telling them, if you read the context here of this passage, he's telling the Romans that I want to come to you soon, but first I have to make a detour to Jerusalem to drop off this gift that I've been collecting from a lot of the churches where they want to have a gift to undertake to provide for the poor that are in Jerusalem. We'll get to that in a second. But as soon as he gets to Jerusalem, he's been warned along the way that he faces opposition there. Within a week of being there, the Jewish unbelievers are trying to kill him. Here's, here's what it looks like. Acts 21, 30 through 31. And all the city was disturbed. This is within a week of him getting there. And the people, so we fast forwarded from when he's writing this letter, just to, so we're in the same context here. He now did go to Jerusalem. Within a week of getting there, all the city was disturbed and the people ran together. They seized Paul. They dragged him out of the temple and immediately the doors were shut. Now as they were seeking to kill him, News came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. What happened is the commander of the Roman garrison actually rescued Paul from being killed by primarily the people that were leading this were unbelieving Jews. You fast forward a little bit. <clears throat> you see this two chapters later, Acts twenty three twelve, And when it was day... Some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. So that's what Paul was up against when he's talking about being delivered from those in Judea who do not believe. 
And it's funny that as you think about Paul's, he says, he's prayer, he's saying, pray this for me now, and then you fast forward to what happened there. He's praying, he's saying, pray for my deliverance in Judea because he knows what's likely to happen. But what, it's interesting to note that Paul was not delivered in a favorable way from a human perspective. So that had been their prayer, presumably. Paul had been praying this. They had been praying this, leading up to him actually going there. But how was he delivered? Well, not in the way that a human would say is favorable. Delivery came in the form of arrest and imprisonment by the Romans. Paul spent over two years imprisoned outside of Jerusalem in a place called Caesarea. Now, during that time, the Lord used it, but his deliverance wouldn't have been, you wouldn't have even considered this from a human perspective to be an answer to prayer, but yet God did deliver him. He did answer the prayers of these Roman believers who had been praying along with Paul for his own deliverance. Then the next phrase he says, the next thing I want you to pray for, here's a second specific request, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. So the context, as I already explained, is Paul intended to make this 2,000-mile detour to Jerusalem so that he could personally deliver the financial assistance various churches had made for the poor believers in Jerusalem, And you see that a little bit earlier here in chapter 15, verse 26 of Romans. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. So Paul was going to personally take this contribution to the poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And then he said, then I want to come and see you. Well, from where he was to where they was was, re- was relatively close. He had to go 2,000 miles out of his way to go to Jerusalem to bring this in person. But why was he concerned? Paul was concerned that his visit and accompanying gift would be unwelcome because some Jewish believers saw him as a threat to Jewish traditions. And we don't have the time to get into it all, but I mentioned that he faced opposition from unbelieving Jews. But Paul, though being a Jew himself, because of his ministry to the Gentiles and because of the difficulty culturally for Jewish people to accept this new dispensation of the church age, the age of grace, where the distinction between Jew and Gentile was secondary now to the common bond and unity that they had in Christ. He said, in Christ there's neither male nor female, bond nor free, rich nor poor, Jew nor Gentile. That was tough for the Jewish believers. And so they did see Paul as a threat to some extent, some of them, and that's why Paul was concerned that his visit to minister to them with this gift wouldn't be accepted favorably. Well, we need to move on for the sake of time. The next two specific prayer requests are found here. He says, I want you to pray with me, for me, and here's the third thing, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God. And the fourth thing is that I may be refreshed together with you. So let's look at the last two here. The first one, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God. thing that has to jump off the page to you, I hope, is that Paul understood that his will was secondary to God's will. Do you understand that? Jesus modeled that as he said in the garden, not my will be done, but thy will be done. This idea that living the Christian life is to live as directed and led by God as an ambassador and a servant of his, to do as he sees fit, not as we see fit, as he directs, not as we direct. It's not, I'll direct myself and then ask you to bless my own choices after the fact, Lord. 
It's let you lead to begin with. Not my will, but thy will. And I, I love the way he expresses that here, that I may come to you with joy, but all under the umbrella of the will of God. God eventually did bring Paul to these Roman believers despite difficult trials. He eventually did. And he promised him that he would. Acts 23, 11, the Lord appeared to him while he was in Caesarea in prison. But the following night, the Lord stood by me and he said, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. So how did he get to Rome? Shipwreck, in bonds, chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day. As a prisoner, he went to Rome. Spent two more years in prison in Rome, four years total, straight in prison. Did God bring him to Rome? Yes. Did he get to see these believers? Yes. He was under house arrest in Rome. They had access to him. He saw many of these believers. He said God has actually worked it together for good because many of those believers were uh, emboldened to proclaim Christ as they saw Paul in his bonds. It actually worked out, he says, for the furtherance of the gospel, he wrote to one of the churches as he was writing from prison in Rome. In any event, what's the fourth and last specific prayer request? The fourth and last specific prayer request is that we may be refreshed, that I may be refreshed together with you. So that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and that I may, you have to insert that, be refreshed together with you. Refreshed carries the idea of being reinvigorated, re-energized, and rested. And as you think about that, time spent with other believers should be uplifting, encouraging, and refreshing. Now, I understand that it's not, but it should, it's not always, but it should be. That should be the case, that we come together for the betterment of each other, not for each other's worse, not for each other's detriment. We come together to Lift up and keep the focus on the right things. Keep the most important things front and center. To build up and encourage and exhort. To come alongside of one another. To strive together, to work together, to minister together. To, to set aside the other things. That's what it should be. Let's look at a few verses quickly. Romans 1.12 Paul says this in another prayer, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you. Now, we had touched on this already, but what's encouraging about being together with other believers? Encouraged by what? By our common hobbies? Our common interests? Our common opinions? No, by our common mutual faith in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians sixteen eighteen, he says, For they refreshed my spirit and yours. Being with these certain men, it re they refreshed my spirit to be with these men. Philemon 7, Paul says this, For we have great joy and consolation in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Being together should be refreshing, encouraging, uplifting, See, God's design for the body of Christ in both its universal and local expression involves symbiotic or mutually beneficial interactions. 
mutually beneficial interactions. Here's a wonderful verse about this, Proverbs 11.25. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who, ought, he who waters will also be watered himself. There's joy in serving Jesus. It's beneficial to me to be able to serve you. It's beneficial to me to be able to serve alongside of you. God brings the increase in terms of what happens with that investment, but also the increase in you. He works in you as you're willing to serve Him, to bring you closer to Him, to transform you into the image of His Son, to uplift you, to exalt you. As you humble yourself and allow Him to work in and through you, as you see your sufficiency is not of yourself but is of Him, then God is free to work in you in a way that can build you up. Not your ego. Allow you to grow in your faith, to mature in your faith. Now we have our last verse here. This is technically, the others are prayer requests. This is technically a prayer itself. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Pretty short prayer. Pretty great prayer. You don't have to pray a lot for somebody. You could pray something very small like this. After humbly requesting prayers for himself, Paul ends with this short prayer. And you see this God of peace? We've touched on this already a couple times in the last few weeks, but true peace is sourced in God. It has nothing to do with circumstances. God is the one who can provide peace. This is one of six times that Paul identifies God with the phrase God of peace. We could, do a, we could have done a study on that. I had to cut it out of the notes, and we're already going a little long. God of peace. Six times he uses that phrase. Do that as a devotion for yourself. One of them is Lord of peace, so don't come back to me and say, no, it was only five. Five God of peace, one Lord of peace. Now you can imagine Paul reminding himself of this truth as he prays this blessing on them. You know, he's facing all this anticipated opposition. And he's saying to them, now the God of peace be with you all. Don't you think that he's relating to that himself? See, Paul will soon need to claim this promise for himself as his immediate future promises to be filled with conflict and strife. It's interesting when you think of may, now the God of peace, may, or may the God of peace be with you all. It's, it's important to remember that God's peace is an inner tranquility and rest that is beyond comprehension. We cannot even fathom this. As you're thinking about things to pray for people, pray that they would experience God's peace. It's a tranquility of soul. It's a restfulness that we can't even understand because we have nothing really to compare it to in a life full of fleeting peace, if anything, temporal peace, if anything, but generally hostilities, disagreements, agitations. That's the kind of life we normally experience. So we, and if we do experience a time of rest, it's temporary. Or it's rest that's accompanied with heartburn and grinding teeth. It's not real rest. But God's kind of peace is something we can't even wrap our minds around. Romans 4, 7, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now that's NIV because it says transcends all understanding. Instead of passes all understanding, which transcends all understanding. That's what it means. 
Could you really request something better for a fellow believer than praying? May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. May it be so. So pray for me. Are you humble enough to see your need for the prayers of fellow believers? Do you recognize your need for spiritual assistance as even the Apostle Paul did? Is your fulfillment of your assigned mission, which is living to lift Jesus up, your primary concern? And you see that it was Paul's primary concern in terms of the prayer requests that he had. Do you pray for the spiritual well-being and success of your fellow believers? And I think this is very sobering because very often we pray for very specific physical needs of our fellow believers and we should. That's not the point. The point is in addition to that, are we praying for their spiritual success and their spiritual well-being? Because we should do that in addition to the specific trials and the details of what they're going through. What a useful reminder of the eternal perspective we are to primarily have as believers, even as it relates to our prayers. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love. Pray that you would give us your peace. Pray that we would stay focused on you, be in awe of you, that you could work in our lives so we could accomplish the mission faithfully that you've given us to be lights for you in the darkness around us. Pray that we would do that through your strength, depending on you to do in and through us what we could never do for ourselves, that we would stay humble in the process. In Jesus' name, amen.